Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is where we left off last week. We're going to pick back up in verse 16. As you're finding John chapter 5, let me mention that uh, we are, uh, we've been doing a Bible study on Sunday nights through Galatians, and we're hitting the pause button on that. We're not going to meet tonight or really through, uh, through July. We'll pick that back up in August sometime. So if you've been coming to that, we're, we're, we're pausing that for a little summer break and rest. And on that note of a little summer break and rest, uh, we're going to finish, we're going to take the next two Sundays to finish John chapter 5. This is one of the longest discourses of Jesus in, in really the whole gospel. We'll finish John chapter 5 next Sunday uh, on Father's Day. And then the last Sunday of June and all through July, I'm going to take a little rest. And uh, Robert and Tyler and Reuben will be preaching through the last Sunday of June and July. And then we'll pick back up, uh, Lord willing, in August in John chapter 6, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, John chapter 6. Well, our text this morning, J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop and theologian and preacher in the mid-1800s, said about where we are in the Bible today that it's one of the deepest parts of the Bible. Now, that's really saying something. We all, on one level or another, by nature want to appropriate Jesus for our own means. We have a tendency to focus on aspects of the person of Jesus to the neglect of others to make our sort of maybe political or cultural point. And our text this morning will push against that. I want us to look at this text, verses 16 through 29, and I'm going to unfold what I think, amongst much other truths, but at a minimum, are five aspects of the Son of God. So I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we're going to work our way back through them and unfold them. The divinity of the Son, the unity of the Son with the Father, the sovereignty of the Son, the judgment of the Son, and the resurrection of the Son. And this is Jesus speaking all the way through this text. And I think these are five aspects that Jesus gives us about who he is, that he's speaking to these Jewish religious leaders that he wants them to understand, and that are recorded for us so that we might understand who Jesus is from the Scriptures. Well, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this text. Thank you for Caroline and her burden for the nations. Thank you that we can sing together and pray together and open our Bibles together. And as we think about the nations, we think of our brothers and sisters across the world who don't have the liberties that we do. Lord, encourage them, strengthen them, help them endure. Lord, may we not, may we not be... Uh, brought into a kind of laziness by our comfort. May you produce in us a a focus on the beauty and the glory of the gospel this morning. And would you help me, Lord? I feel so inadequate. I confess along with what Jesus has said in the scriptures, I confess back to you that apart from you, we can do nothing. 
So help me today as I want to help my people, these people that I love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start reading in verse 16. And remember what we looked at last week, the healing of this man at the pool of Bethesda where Jesus asked him if he would be made whole. And this question is recorded for us because Jesus asked us that question. And remember, the context of the first part of John chapter 5 is that this healing of this man at the pool in Bethesda takes place on the Sabbath, which is starting to irritate the religious leaders referred to often in John simply as the Jews. It's irritating the religious leaders because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, which they perceive to be as breaking the Sabbath. And he tells this man to pick up his mat and walk. And so it's starting to to, uh, begin this tension, this public tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his people, Israel. And so let me pick up in verse verse, uh, 16 after the healing of this man. And it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And here we see in these first few verses, the divinity of the Son. So what Jesus is doing is he is, he is simply claiming divinity by saying that he is the Son and he's working with his Father. Now, to our modern ears, we might think, well, that doesn't sound like anything particularly controversial. I mean, Jesus is just claiming to be the Son of God. And we might think, well, well all of us might sort of think of ourselves in that way as believers, as God's people. But, but Jesus is actually saying something much deeper here when he's, he's saying that my father is working. The point is, is that the whole Sabbath principle is based on the Old Testament, the creation account, where it says that God created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. And then when he gives Moses the law in Exodus, in, and part of that law was this principle, this command to rest on the seventh day as God rested. So we need this rest. It's part of the Old Testament law. It's part of what it meant to be a Jew. And even though we're, we, we are in the new covenant, we still have this principle of rest that we need as God's people. But really, when you think about it, they, this, this was a, a clear misunderstanding of who God was by these Jews because it's not as if, because the Sabbath principle is based on God resting, but it's not as if God actually needed rest or on the seventh day he stopped working because if God stopped working, things would utterly fall apart. In fact, this morning already, when Joseph Davis was praying for the call to worship, he mentioned in his prayer, Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. God is always at work sustaining us. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that my father's working. He's not bound by the Sabbath. He's created the Sabbath. And so when Jesus claims to be the Son of God and says that like my Father, I'm working too, he's claiming a kind of status that would go far beyond us just sort of generically saying, well, I'm a child of God or I'm the Son of God. He, in first century Jewish ears, is claiming to be God. That's what he's saying to these people, these Jewish leaders, and that infuriated them. And this... This is Jesus claiming 
divinity. He's claiming to be God. He is making himself. In fact, that's what John, the apostle who's writing this gospel, says at the end of verse 18, that calling God his own father was equivalent to making himself equal with God. And so to understand who Jesus is biblically, we need to understand that he is divine. Now, why is this important for us to understand and believe before we move on? Two, just two thoughts about why this is important to understand the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus. Because, because if we understand that it is Jesus, the, the, not only the man, but God himself that has come to lay down his life on the cross, we will understand the holiness of God. We understand the depth and the depravity of our sin because it takes more than just merely a good man. It takes God himself in the flesh to rescue us from God himself. So we understand how holy God is and how wretched our rebellion is against the holy God. It deserves, it requires a punishment greater than any of us can satisfy. The holiness of God needs the righteousness of God to appease it. And that's why Jesus, being fully God, truly God, always God, as we've confessed together in this historic confession, and as Jesus confesses and infuriates the religious leaders, is so important. Listen to 1 John 4.10, same John writing later on in his life in this smaller epistle towards the end of the Bible, 1 John 4.10, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son, who is truly man and truly God, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now we talk about that word a lot. It's such an important word. Don't be intimidated by that word that you might not use in everyday English. You really need to understand propitiation. It's at the very heart of the understanding of the gospel. It means that the wrath, the holiness, the judgment, the punishment of God for our sin was satisfied, was, was extinguished, was removed, was absorbed taken away by who? Jesus. And how could he do that? Not merely because he's a good man or a perfect man, but because he is the infinitely holy, righteous God himself in the flesh. And he turns that wrath, he removes it, he extinguishes it, and he turns it into God's favor. He gives us his righteousness. And what's his righteousness? It's not that it's the righteousness of a good man. It's the righteousness of God himself. We need to understand that that can only happen if Jesus is divine. And we also see, so first we see how, how holy God is. Secondly, we see how loving God is. We sang it earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, that he should give us his only son. See and behold the love of God in the giving of the son, the divine son, God in the flesh. In fact, this is Paul's logic in Romans 8 verse 32. As he thinks about this, he says that, that, that God did not spare his own son. How will he not graciously with him give us all things? If I've given you the greatest treasure in the universe, the son of God, the divine son, to die for you on the cross, why would I hold anything back that you truly need? And so just from 
That aspect of Jesus here, we see the beauty of the gospel, the divinity of the Son. And this is making the Jews angry. Well, let's keep going. We see secondly, so first the divinity of the Son. Secondly, the unity of the Son with the Father. This, this triune, at least at this point, two members of the Trinity that we've read and confessed about already. We see their unity here in verses 19 through 20. So let's, let's read 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Now, isn't there a mystery? Let's just admit there's a kind of beautiful incomprehensibility. I don't know if I just made up a word, but I think, I think it's actually a word. Incomprehensibility. Incomp- you know what I'm saying. It's hard to understand. Where Jesus has just claimed divinity, but yet now we see he's giving us a kind of peek behind the curtain of the glory of the triune God, and he's saying there, the Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son, and the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's, there's never any disagreement between the Father and the Son. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. So verse 20 is just so packed full of just rich truth. The Father, within this triune God, three in one, one God, three distinct persons, we see Two of them spoken here of in verse 20, where you see the Father loving the Son. And oh, by the way, that's why in Paul's letters in the New Testament, especially Romans and Colossians and Ephesians, it's always talking about us being in Christ. We are united with Christ. We're in Him. He's in us. Why is that so important? Because if we are in Christ, then the love that God has for the Son is ours. Do you, do you understand that? If you're, part, if, you're, if you're united, if you're one with Christ, then what's his is yours. And verse 20 says that the Father loves the Son. And so this is just a, a little rabbit trail here, but that means that if you are a believer, if you've been made alive, if your sins are forgiven, that you are now caught up in the most glorious circle ever, the love of the triune God for himself. That's glorious. Back, back, back to, the, to the main trail. So we see here this unity of the Son with the Father. We see the, the equality of the Son and the Father, yet they have different roles. And we see a kind of unity in the mission and the work of, of Trinity. Now, why, why is this important? Why does this matter? Before we move on to, to verse 21 and the next aspect of Jesus' personhood. It matters, and this is important, especially for, for I think what is our natural self-absorbed tendency. God doesn't need to love us. He, he doesn't need us. Oftentimes the gospel is presented, I think, in contemporary circles 
as if God has like a four-leaf clover up in heaven, and he's just waiting to complete himself with us. It's like the end of that Jerry Maguire show or, you know, walk into the living room, you complete me. God doesn't need us to complete him. There's this beautiful theological word. It's called the uh, aseity of God. It's this old English word. It means the, the, the self-sufficiency of God. It means that he doesn't need anything. And, and that's what's going on here. We're getting a kind of peek into the love of God. He doesn't need. So why is that important to understand? Because even though he doesn't need love from us, he gives it to us, which makes his given love, his unneeded love, even sweeter and freer. He's given it to us, and it's ours, and we can revel in it, and he loves us not because of anything in us. He loves us because he loves us. That's the free, glorious, unconditional grace of the gospel. God doesn't love us because of anything that he sees in us. He loves us simply because he loves the Son, and he's given the Son a work to do, and it's the salvation of a people. And we, we see that's why this, this truth matters. That's why this unity matters, this love of the Son with the Father. Well, let's keep going. We see now in the verses 21 and following, the sovereignty or the utter power and the right for all honor, the sovereignty of the Son. Let's, let's read verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just take verse 21 in and just note the, the sovereignty and the authority of God in the giving of life. For as for the Father, verse 22, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Well, verse 21 through 26 are just incredibly rich and thick. We could spend a lot of time just on that, but just for the sake of time, let me just point us to just think about what these verses tell us about the, the sovereignty, the honor that is due the Son of God. And when I say the sovereignty, think of the sovereign. Think of this idea of a king who deserves to be worshipped. Look at verse 21. It says, the, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, just note here that the decisive thing, you, listen, you must believe in order to be saved. You cannot be saved apart from your, your decision to trust in Jesus. But the decisive thing, the, the thing that actually brings salvation about is not primarily human will or first human will, but the will of 
God, and more specifically here, the will of the sovereign Son. That's what verse 21 is saying. And the Father has given the Son the task of judging. We're going to talk about judgment here in just a second. And we see this, this Son. It's easy for us to think of the Father as the, as the King. But we see here also Jesus, this humble, lowly servant that we'll see in the gospel, is also the one to whom all honor has been given. And he is, again, because of the honor that he deserves, equal with the Father. Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not subject to us. Jesus is this beautiful combination of diverse excellencies. He is the most glorious and he is the most humble all at the same time. And we can't have one without the other. When we have one aspect of Jesus without the other, we distort Jesus for our own earthly reasons. But here we have a sovereign God. Jesus is the one to whom all honor. Just, just take in, just take in this picture. God is sovereign. The Son, the Son of God, God in the flesh, God the Son, is utterly sovereign, yet he's utterly humble. And here he is having a theological argument with those whom he's created, who he's allowing to disagree with him, who have rebelled against him, who he will die for. What a picture of the way God works out his sovereignty. So why is this utter freedom, sovereignty, power, authority of the Son important for us to know and believe? Well, because it reminds us that anyone can be saved because Jesus can save anyone. No one's beyond his hope. No one's beyond his reach. The Son gives life. And the mercy, the kindness, the richness of his grace is much greater than our desire for ourselves or our loved ones to be saved. So we cannot, we must not give up hope. And don't give up hope on yourself. Your will... Your sin, your rebellion, your past is not the strongest thing in the universe. And, and this, is, this is just part of our, I think it's part of our religious self-justification nature. I see this in my own soul, and I see this in so many people's soul that I, that I just counsel with pastorally, is this obsession with our own failure. And what do I mean by that is there's just, just this sense that, you know, I, I, I understand theoretically the power of the gospel, but Brad, you don't know how bad and how wicked I've been. And that feels sort of religious and humble, doesn't it, when you say something like that? Like, it's kind of a woes me, I've been the worst guy, you don't know what I've done, how can Jesus ever forgive me? It sounds kind of self-deprecating and humble, but actually, if you think about it, it's actually the height of arrogance and pride. Because what we're saying when we have that sort of woes me, I'm unsavable, I'm unredeemable, I'm unchangeable aspect is we're actually making a value assessment where we're saying, I understand theoretically that, that, that he is the sovereign. It, he has a will that's stronger than mine. He can change uh, a leper's spots. He can make the dead alive. He can do all this, but, 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 but not me. 
because I, I'm, I'm, I feel really bad about what I've done, and I actually enjoy the feelings of self-justification medicine that I give myself when I metaphorically lash, beat myself on the back by just sort of wallowing in my guilt. We're actually saying when we do that, and all of us on some level to one degree or another, I think, struggle with this in our lives. We're actually saying that my feelings of self-justifying guilt are more powerful than the gospel itself. And that's a terrible way to live your spiritual life. Let's not do that. That's why it's important to see this. He gives life to whom he wills. He gives life to the worst of the worst. He is able, Hebrews 7, 25, I think it is, to save to the uttermost. Okay, let's, let's go on. Next, in these next uses, we see, verses, we see the judgment of the Son. The judgment of the Son. You know, I want us to think deeply about what we mean by the judgment of the Son biblically. I, I think we tend to view that negatively, and certainly there's a, there's a decisiveness to us, but there's a beautiful grace to the judgment of the Son. So let's read verses 22. So we're going to go back into what we just read verse 23 through 24, and then skip down to verse 27, and we see Jesus speaking about his judgment. So he says in verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that they, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So again, Jesus, as we've said often, is, is really being very clear that in the end, there will be only two types of people. Those who are trusting in Jesus, who has satisfied the judgment of a holy God for our rebellion and are in him and safe and live with him forever and receive all of the wonderful blessings of being in him forever, or those who do not, who will be judged and who will spend eternity away from him. And then he says in verse 27, and he has given him authority. So this is the father has given the son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been referring him to himself as the Son of God in many ways, but here he calls himself the Son of Man, and we might think, and maybe in your Bible, man is capitalized. What's going on there? This is a clear reference to an Old Testament picture in Daniel chapter 7, and let me flip to Daniel chapter 7 and read verses 13 and 14, and now, we're wading into the middle of a very complex book in Daniel chapter 7, but Daniel chapter 7 is basically a vision of Daniel about the ultimate judgment of God against the kingdoms of this earth and people that don't bow down to him. And this figure, this figure of the Son of Man is, is, is in this vision of Daniel, and it's this 
this son who comes to judge, he is given the authority to judge by God who is called the Ancient of Days in Daniel's vision. So let, let me read Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw, and again, this is the vision of Daniel who's captive by the Babylonian Empire at the time, and he's having this dream of judgment against the world. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, meaning the Son of Man's, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so, for Old Testament believing Jews, they had this hope in this Son of Man who would come and who would finally judge the enemies of God's people and would take up dominion and power and authority and assume the throne of God. And Jesus here is calling himself that son of man. And he's saying that the judgment that the Old Testament is picturing here in Daniel chapter 7, I'm the one who's come to do that. I come to judge. And either you are in me, you believe in me, and you have eternal life, or you don't, and you don't pass from death to life, you stay in spiritual death, which doesn't mean you cease to exist, but it means that you are separated from God forever. Now let's just pause here and consider what, why this is important. Well, just to consider the dominant view of the cultural, the common, dominant cultural view of Jesus. The, the dominant cultural view of Jesus, I think, can be summed up in that, that Doobie's Brother song. Jesus is just all right with me. You know, that's the anthem of this world. Jesus is just all right with me. These are some of the words of that, of that song. Jesus, he's my friend. Jesus, he's my friend. He took me by the hand, led me far from this land. Jesus, he's my friend. Friends, that, that sort of tamed Jesus that's there to help me make me feel better about myself while I do whatever I want to do is a wicked view of Jesus. But that's the view of this world. And Jesus is saying, no, yes, I am lowly. Yes, I have come to wash your feet. I've come to die for you. I am the most humble of all, but yet I am the sovereign and I have come to judge. And he has come to separate, as he says at the end of Matthew, the sheep from the goats or believers from unbelievers or those who believe in him from those who do not believe in him. Friends, that's what's going on here. Jesus is being decisive, and he is the one who judges. He's not just merely the Jesus with feathered brown hair, like he just came out of a tanning salon looking all sweet and humble. He is the fierce, sovereign God. But we tend to, and let's, let's think more deeply about, because we can't have just merely this ferocious, victorious, exalted Jesus at the expense of the merciful, humble Jesus. They must go together. When you take one and you jettison the other, you miss the biblical Jesus. And even, I want you to see this, I want you to see this even within the judgment of the Son, the victorious, the reigning, the exalted Jesus, even embedded in that aspect of Jesus is this beautiful mercy and grace. How so? Well, when we think of 
judgment and justice, we, we tend to think of it in certain ways. First, we, of course, we all sort of want justice, or we think we do, but we want it for everybody else, right? And when Jesus comes to judge and to bring justice, and when we see that we actually deserve that judgment and justice, but m- because of grace, we have escaped that judgment, and Jesus took it for us, it humbles us. It's a posture of humility. We tend to think of Jesus' judgment merely in stern, victorious ways because it's easy for us to think about Jesus judging all of the people that we disagree with culturally or politically, and we miss the fact that we deserve the judgment of Jesus. He is the great judge, and the only reason that it anybody won't be judged on that day is because of the unfathomable kindness and grace and mercy of Jesus. So, so nobody, nobody shows up at the return of Christ sort of standing next to Jesus saying, yeah, you get him. I, I, was, a, I was a freshman in high school and my brother was a senior and my brother was a, a a bruiser. He was a tough guy. He was a captain of the football team. He was built like a fire hydrant. He, 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 was a, he was just a tough dude. And I enjoyed being a smart mouth little freshman because I could get away with it because my big brother always had my back. But you know what? There's nothing worse than a little smart aleck. I was like Eddie Haskell, you know? There's nothing worse than a little smart aleck who's standing next to the strong man. And my, my concern is, is that sometimes when we appropriate Jesus for our particular perspective, it's like we're the little brother standing next to this sovereign judging Jesus saying, yeah, take care of all those people that don't see life like I do. Get them, Jesus, get them. That's a terrible way to see the judgment of Jesus. When we see the judgment of the Son who has come to make all things right, we should see the awesome grace of God. We don't see ourselves with our arms folded saying, yeah, sick them, big brother. We see ourselves in grace and humility saying, there go I but for the grace of God. So we should see the judgment of Jesus like this. Why is this important for us to understand and believe? I think it's important for us to understand because we don't have to wring our hands wondering whether or not everything is going to be made right. It will. We can rest in God's justice. And although, listen to me carefully, although Part of what it means to be a Christian in culture and in society and part of the reason why God has left us here in this life is so that we might be lights and examples and we might do good to the city that we dwell in. So therefore, we should work 
for justice, for righteousness, we should try and bring to bear the righteousness and justice of God in our lives, even in our political systems, by the way that we live. Yes, the pursuit of that kind of earthly embodiment of the justice of God is a noble and biblical command for every Christian. Yes, a thousand times yes and amen. However, we must realize that that full and final justice is something that only God can bring. And it awaits us. It's something that's coming. Listen to Romans. Listen to what Paul writes about this. In Romans, this posture of a Christian who, who's wanting to live in a certain way, but ultimately is giving the exacting of justice over to a sovereign God who is not sleeping, who is not passive, who will judge. This is what he says in Romans chapter 12. He says, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Man, I love that. Associate with the lowly. That rabbit, this is a rabbit trail. Church culture gets really messed up when people use fellowship in the church to make much of themselves. But church culture gets really, really beautiful and sweet and Christ-like when people who are, they kind of have sort of a lot in a worldly sense, go out of their way to associate with people who can't benefit them at all socially. That's just a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I think it's something to think about. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. <laughs> Let me read verse 19 again. We, we, you will be talked about if you're a Christian. If you're, if you, if you're in leadership, if you're, a young, if you're a young man who desires to someday go into ministry, and you have more than 10 people... You, you, there, you, will be, you will be questioned. Your motives will be impugned. People will assume things about you. And what does, what does Paul say here? He says, beloved, don't chase down every little rabbit trail or every little comment. Never avenge yourselves, but just leave it over to the wrath of God. And I'm not saying people that critique me or pastors need the wrath of God. I'm just saying just God, God will take care of things. God's in charge. God is sovereign. God will judge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on your head. Listen to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can rest. We can rest in the fact that Jesus is the Son who comes and judges. And when we see that, we don't have our arms folded. We have our arms lifted up in a cry for mercy and worship because he has taken the judgment for us. And finally, the resurrection of the son. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of 
judgment. So Jesus is saying that there is a future and final resurrection. Verse 28 says exactly what it means. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. I think there's a spiritual and physical application to that. That Jesus, by the power of his work on the cross, his victory over sin, death, and the grave, spiritually speaks, and we come alive. We come out of our spiritual tombs, and he makes us alive. But he's also referring to the final resurrection, because he says that those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there is this final physical resurrection where we will be glorified and we will dwell with him forever when he returns to finally and fully take his people all the way home. More on that in just a second. But first, we need to just answer a question that you might be thinking. Is Jesus here in verse 29 teaching salvation by works? Because he says those who have done good make it to heaven, the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, the resurrection of the judgment. No. If this was all that the Bible ever said about salvation, we, we might be able to conclude that. But I think clearly what Jesus is saying here is essentially what James is saying in his letter that we went over a few months ago is that true saving faith, true belief in Jesus will result in a measure of obedience, spiritual fruit in a person's life. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 29. But what is Jesus talking about when he says this resurrection of the life? He's pointing to the future, to the resurrection of our bodies from the grave being reunited with our spirits and being with him forever. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. This is the great hope of the believer. Romans 6 verse 5, he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, in other words, he died for us on the cross, all the benefits of his death on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God, are ours, and we're united with him in that. Then, here's his, here's his logic in the second part of that verse, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, let's, let's think a little bit deeper. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's future. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain future the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." And let's go one step further, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. This is what Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, listen to verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so let me me just wrap this up. 
by saying that what is Jesus saying here? He's pointing to, and maybe you've never heard this if you're newer to the Christian faith or you've just kind of grown up in a church that did sort of three points in a poem and then, you know, went home. This is, this is biblical Christianity of what Jesus is going to do. The resurrection of the Son guarantees the resurrection of his people. And what does that mean? It means that if we were to all, those of us who are in Christ, if we were to all die today, our bodies would go into the ground and our spirits, our souls would go to be with the Lord. But the Bible's very clear in these verses that I've read, and specifically 1 Corinthians 15, that speaks about the return of Christ when Jesus comes back the second time, when he returns, he is going to transform us, and those of us that are in heaven with him as spirit will be reunited, resurrected with our physical bodies. How's that going to happen? I don't know. Paul tells us in Corinthians that in the twinkling of an eye, at a trumpet sound, we will be reunited, glorified, and we shall be like him. So the resurrected, glorified, reigning Jesus in his physical form is the future. We will be like him. That's the physical future state of a Christian. That's in the Bible. And Jesus is saying that he's coming back. Don't marvel. An hour is coming when the dead spiritually will come to life. And those who are with me, as he says later on in the, in the New Testament through Paul, that we will be glorified and we will be resurrected and we will be with him forever. So we're not going to be little cupids playing harps on a cloud with wings. We're going to be, and there's mystery in this. I don't know. Eye has not seen. Ear has this is, There's this beautiful incomprehensibility that we will only experience when we get there. We will be reunited with our bodies that will have no more torn ACLs, no more sore backs, no more diabetes, no more high cholesterol, no more anything that ails us. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sin. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more lust. There will be no more depression. Our brains will function perfectly. Our bodies will be like Jesus and we will live with him for Forever. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. And the Bible points us in this direction. Why is this so important for us to know and to see this aspect of the person of Jesus that he guarantees this? Because, friends, it is so easy to appropriate Jesus as a mere teacher of worldly ethics and principles. And certainly he's full of truth for this life. But the great hope of the gospel is not merely that he will make you a better CEO or a better platoon sergeant, but that he will raise you from the grave and you will be like him forever. The Christian life, friends, is future-oriented. There's a lean to it, and it's a forward lean. And if we know, why is this important? Because if we know that's where we are going then, we can endure whatever we're facing now. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. And we don't fall off on one side of the ditch and say, oh, well, I'm just waiting for heaven, so forget this. The world can go to hell in a handbasket. 
Because your life is meant to be used by God to be a witness so that other people can enjoy the resurrection that's coming. So we can't disengage. But we also can't fall over into the other side of the ditch where we become so obsessed with culture or prosperity and so despairing of it because we have such a temporal view of the world that whatever happens here and now overtakes us with depression and, 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 and sorrow. There's a kind of tension here. Do you see this? Because we know that Jesus is using us, but we know that Jesus is coming back, and we know that we will live with him forever. So what can these 80 or 90 years ultimately do to me? Nothing. What can the cancer cell do to me? What can the diagnosis do to me? What can the virus do to me? Nothing that he has not planned for me for my good. So what's the conclusion? And I end with this. I've been trying to preach a little shorter, and I'm, I'm too long today. Let me, let, me just, let me land this plane. Put your seat backs up and buckle up. Here's the point of John. And why has Jesus given us, we're halfway through it, why has he given us this discourse? So that we would believe. John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus is giving this sermon, so to speak, in John chapter 5, so that we might believe in him and have life in his name. Unbeliever, if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus, maybe you're just investigating Christianity, or maybe it's become apparent to you that you don't believe the Bible as has been presented to you, and you're aware of the fact that you're not trusting in Christ. You must pass from death to life. And the fact that you're here today, I think, is a sign of God's kindness to you. And if you're hearing these words, I think it's evidence that God has given you ears to hear. So turn from yourself. Turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. Trust in this Jesus, this this sovereign Jesus because he's the only one that can take the punishment for you, the judgment for you. He's the only place that's safe. Believe in him. Repent. Don't trust in yourself, your own goodness, your own righteousness. Trust in Jesus. And if you're already a believer, don't become passive. Don't just sit back and say, well, I'm a Christian now. This is given so that we would know him better, so that we would love him more deeply, that it would produce in us more humility, that we would serve him more passionately, that we would be used by him more fruitfully, and that we would enjoy him more sweetly forever. Let, us, let our hearts not become numb and cold and callous and comfortable, but let us see this beautiful picture of Jesus and be humbled by it so that we might be used by him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Take the word of God and use it. May the spirit of God take it and use it. And Lord, may you use my words of exhortation to help bring about your means and ends. If anything that I have said that's wrong or not on point, let, let those words fall to the ground. If there's anything that I've said that's true and good and right, Lord, let it stick fast to our hearts. Do your work with your word, by your spirit, in your people, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.